Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of RM Sotheby's Car Show. And this is a bonus episode, this is a special episode, um, after I had caught up with Sam Hancock, historic racer, well known for being a historic racer, but also a guy that's driven factory cars at Le Mans, got an amazing CV, and I caught up with him at our London auction in early November, and we had a really fascinating chat about everything historic and motorsport related. Uh, I think you're gonna find a lot of interest. So uh, sit back and enjoy the conversation with Sam. Welcome, Sam. Thank you for joining us. Thanks and, for having me. Uh, the reason we've asked Sam, if you're not familiar with Sam, uh, which is hard to, ima hard to imagine anyone would be familiar with you and your career, Sam, but uh, Sam has had uh, a really successful uh, career at the peak of uh, Le Mans and GT racing. You were European Le Mans champion in 2004? Literally decades ago, yeah. <laughs> Decade, Very 2004. Yeah. Less grey in your hair back then, you know. No, but Sam, you have had, joking aside, you've had a great career. And so let's just rewind a little bit. Let's go back to little Sam, <laughs> 10 year old Sam. Yeah. Sort of where did it all start? Um, I can sum that up pretty quickly. Uh, it was the classic story of growing up with motor racing very much in our household because my dad has always raced for fun, for a hobby. Um, initially, in classic Formula 4 2000. Well, it wasn't classic when he was doing it. It was just, just was Formula 4 2000. <laughs> and I, I just grew up from the age of probably zero, going to a racetrack every other weekend, Lydon Hill, Brands Hatch, Mallory Park, Cadwell, wherever it was, just, just to watch dad. And I, I just grew up around these race cars, loved it for as far back as my memory goes. And there's countless pictures of me sitting in the cars at various ages, desperately trying to see if I can see over the top of the steering wheel or reach the pedals, which ironically went on to become absolutely not a problem, except that it was too easy to reach the pedals and I'm too tall for my chosen career. But um, no, I, I, I just remember only ever wanting to race and that was it. There was never anything else out there for me. And when I finally was tall enough to reach the pedals of dad's cart, which stood up against a wall in the shed, um, we went off to Blackbush, but not to the circuit itself, to the sort of redundant airfield mm -hmm. next door, mm -hmm. which had some very bumpy tarmac runways that you could put a six-year-old kid into without a helmet and bump start a 100cc two-stroke cart and sort of roll the dice and see what happens. And, and I just loved it um, from, from that first moment and started racing cadet carts at, uh, I think, eight or nine years old. And, and never looked back. So when you first got into a cart, were you instantly competitive or, you know, how hard did you have to work at it? I think the f very first race I ever did was an indoor karting event at Playscape Racing, which was one of the first in the country, Playscape. I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and I tagged along and, and Dad and I had sort of had this pre-event briefing about how to blag my way in because I was super underage. I mean, I wasn't racing cadets at this time, so. I was reasonably tall, I think, for my age, and somehow they let me in. I was, I was in Dad's massive racing leathers. It didn't fit, you know, drowning in those. For whatever reason, they let me race. I was probably eight years old, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And the structure, I remember, was a couple of heats and a, maybe a semi-final and a final or something. And I was appalling in the heats. I think I finished bog last both times. And I vividly remember being so pissed off about that and I watched what everyone else was doing and suddenly the concept of a racing line kind of just sort of appeared in my brain I sort of got a sense of that they are oh, okay they're turning in from over there and cutting into there okay let's try that and um, and I didn't I didn't win the final but whatever I got through to I, I, I won the race of all the losers the worst people yeah. but I won that so I went I went home happy I'm and, very familiar with that yeah exactly um, so so that so actually that was when it started to click and I was very lucky that in the years that followed dad actually opened an indoor kart track of his own in Weybridge called imaginatively called go-karting and I cannot imagine how many hundreds, maybe even thousands of hours I must have spent going round and round in circles from the age probably of, I don't know, 10 to, to 
at 14 or something there, and just every, every spare moment was so spent there. So what he's saying is he cheated because he had his own guard. He had his own. It was a real, track. you know, rags to riches story of you know, <laughs> he's, he's really impoverished his own cart track. It was really, that, it's a tough one. <laughs> well, it's the same for Schumacher. He had his own cart track as well, yes, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it Schumacher family. It yeah, did help. Yeah. It did help. Mm. It wasn't very helpful when you had to sort of you know clean up at the end of a massive corporate session with sixty or so people on a night yeah. out, and they just destroyed all the tyre barriers. They're littered across the whole warehouse, and um, you know carts in all sorts of pieces. But but there were a few th- fun things. There weren't many indoor cart tracks around in whatever year this was 1990-ish and so you would attract especially being down in Weybridge and Surrey which is near McLaren obviously is a bit Mm, of a Formula mm. One hub around there so every now and again you'd get some real superstars along I remember we did some charity event and Christian Fittipaldi turned up and and all I wanted to do was beat him and by this time I'd, I'd done thousands of laps so I was actually reasonably quick and I remember being livid because Herbie Blash um, nerfed me off into the barriers when I was lapping him and I lost what I felt was this really important <laughs> win uh, which of course it wasn't so important So Fittipaldi won? He did, he did, he did he walked yeah. it yeah, yeah. Uh, it, It's interesting, karting is an established way into the sport for, for a, lo- a lot of the guys we obviously see on Formula 1 grids have uh, over the decades come through karting. How much of it is relevant and how much of what you learn in a kart then ultimately does transfer uh, to to proper cars on on proper tracks i mean do you do you think that it's still the most sensible way to get into high level motorsport i i think it is absolutely critical for anyone that is serious about wanting to race at a very high level i cannot think of a better way to develop the muscle memory and the the sort of almost that that sort of instinct that nervous system reaction that we all, when we're racing, we rely on without really thinking about it. And the more laps you can do in a kart as a kid, when all of that stuff's developing so efficiently anyway, the easier it's going to be further down the road. I mean, one of the ways I make my living these days is as a, as a private driver coach. So I'm dealing with a lot of people that are coming to the sport very late in life. And the difference is enormous. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. I don't know if, you know, I, I, some, I can imagine it being similar to you know, trying to learn to ski at 40 yeah, or 50 yeah. years old, really hard, but put a five or six year old on a pair of skis and they just go and they sort of figure it out. And it's the same, I think, in karting. You know, your, your, your backside gets used to the feel of tires sliding across the surface. Your right foot gets used to balancing that slide on the throttle. It's all hyper responsive. Funny enough, my, my brother Ollie does a ton of karting these days and, and I'm almost a bit afraid to go back out there and have a go because on the odd occasion that I have, I'm so bad at it. Terrible, like, truly appalling and embarrassingly bad because you forget how precise you need to be and not just in terms of placing the cart on the apex but in terms of you know, perfect brake pressure at just the right moment with just the right mm. steering input mm. at that time for the rolling speed and the grip available and if you get it wrong which can be the difference of you know in, in pedal travel on the brake it might be you know, a millimeter or less and the rear axle locks and you spun off into the bush and you look it's, like a wally and, and and that has been yeah. me lately and it takes it takes some time to kind of brush the cobwebs it's away and dial back into it physically hard work isn't it I, really I did a karting thing four or five years ago uh, with a bunch of significantly younger people and I've never felt my age more yeah. than that day. I was, yeah. I was dying yeah. in you know, my back, my arms, my shoulders. Yeah. I'm just unfit, but, you know, but it is a very physical sport, isn't it? Well, actually, I'm pleased you mentioned it because I was just thinking I really need to kind of you know, pull my finger out and get back on my training this winter. And, you know, most training is boring, but actually karting is a fantastic way to get right race fit very quickly yeah. and, ge- and genuinely. Like that it is, as you say, it's physically really hard. It's easy to get beaten up. You do have to be careful. I once, in fact, prior to what I would probably say is my, my biggest year ever racing at Le Mans, uh, I went karting a couple of weeks before, I was sort of trying to do a bit of training and karting was part of it. And literally about 10 days before racing 
an LMP1 car for Aston Martin at Le Mans, I managed to fracture a rib in a cart. And um, I think it's the first time I've probably told anyone about that because the team <laughs> certainly didn't know. I just remember going through the last hours of, of that year's Le Mans, just bloody agony. Um, well, every, we're going to... Every time I turn through a right hand. We're going to come back to Le Mans because <laughs> obviously um, that's an absolute sort of you know, peak objective for anyone that gets into the sport. Uh, you know, every, everyone wants to go to do Le Mans. I mean, if you don't become a Formula One driver and go off and do the Monaco Grand Prix, you know, Le Mans is the race that everyone wants to do. So we're going to we're definitely going to be talking more about that. But just quickly, um, at what point? So you've grown up in a motorsport family. You're doing all this casting from a really young age. At what point did you stop trying to? Uh, work hard at school to pass any exams because you were saying to yourself I don't need to learn algebra because I'm going to be a racing driver um, was there a point at which you thought mm, I think I'm sufficiently good at this that I might be able to make a living at it or or and or were your parents saying Sam get your exams do your A-levels go to university be sensible um, well, they definitely were saying all of that, and it drove me absolutely mad because, of course, you're looking, you know, you're glued to Formula One every other weekend, you're reading Autosport magazine, you know, Autosport, Karting magazine, Motorsport magazine were cover to cover reads for me every edition. And you're learning about the, the stories, the trajectories of the guys who have made it to Formula One, and often they're coming out of, they're coming into karting at eight years old or, or younger and they're coming out of karting into F3 even for the really good ones at sort of 16 years old and of course you think well that's what I want to do I don't need any of this school you know I just want to go racing and actually I need to do more racing and though I don't want to be selected for the not that I was ever going to get selected for the first level of any kind of ball sports at school but they always find a way to shoehorn you into a D team or whatever it is, which means a match on the Sunday and yeah, yeah. all this stuff. So, so half of my life was spent trying to wriggle out of things like that so that I could go racing and testing. Um, and the other half was kind of, yeah, just, just, just you know, trying to placate mum and dad's um, encouragement, shall we say, to, to, to stay focused enough on school. I mean, there was, I think I probably did try to blag a good few excuses about why school doesn't make sense and I should just go racing full-time from about 14 or 15 years old. Did you go to university? Didn't go to university, no. no. They, they were very clear with me and thank God uh, they said, look, you don't have to go to uni, we'd like you to, but you definitely have to get your A-levels. So obviously you know, that, that meant you know, keeping my head down through GCSEs and A-levels, but I was racing by then. Um, and I think I had a race the day after my last A-level, actually, off the top of my head, which was really hard to ignore when you're trying to write this bloody essay. So you, you'd, you'd gone through various karting formulas. Then, sort of, what happened then? Sort of, you went, yeah. where, where, what formulas were you moving to or championships? Just to be crystal clear in karting, I was never, you know, the next Lewis Hamilton or Jensen Button or whatever. I didn't have the talent and I, I definitely didn't have the stature, the physique for it. I was too tall yeah. and too heavy, which yeah. is a big deal in karting. And um, what would happen is every time I moved up to the next category for the older kids, I would be briefly on the weight limit for about six months. And then I'd, I'd get a few trophies and sort of tell myself, okay, I might be able to do this. Um, but I was very lucky because dad raced and so he had his 1982 Van Diemen single-seater uh, which was a classic Formula 4 2000 race car which the rules changed as I was in my sort of early teens and suddenly 16 year olds were allowed to get a race car license yeah. and we thought that was quite fun and the Van Diemen was there you know they're not valuable cars they're very cheap to run but they are brilliant to drive two litre engines slicks and wings space frame chassis proper things so at 16 I was allowed to go and race that for the season and um, and pretty you know, it was very clubby environment and I definitely had some learning to do and that transition from carts to cars was weird I remember just thinking oh, none of, nothing makes sense how are you supposed to do this but I figured it out reasonably quickly and once I started sort of getting some trophies at that level then we plotted a path up through single seaters Vauxhall Junior uh, and then into Formula Palmer Audi, which was yeah, like a, a single make, cost-capped yeah. version yeah. of 
Formula Renault and, and you know, sort and of they, did they did a winter two. series on that as well, they did didn't they? Winter series. Yeah. Um, but Formula Pomeroy was really key for my career because it was full of guys that went on to do big things. You know, multiple. You know, Darren Turner, who's you know, now mm. Le Mans winner with Aston Martin and teammates of mine. Um, he was doing it. Justin Wilson, who got to Formula One and IndyCar. Robbie Kerr, who was you know, A1 GP and sports car stars. Um, Damien Faulkner, big. Porsche, you know, Super Cup race winner, and all sorts of people passed through that that were really good. And it's quite interesting to look around the paddocks today and see a bunch of pros still earning their living, still operating at a high level of the sport. And we all sort of came out of that, and it was a really hard proving ground because every car was identical, and you had limited things that you could change on the setup. You basically just had to drive it better than everybody else. Um, and again, I, you know, I wasn't good enough to be a championship contender, but I did win a few races, I did get a few podiums, I was sort of a top five kind of a guy. Um, and that was enough to give momentum, um, at least enthusiasm, and justify trying to move up the ladder. But then you go from spending, or well, needing to find circa 100 grand a year, and you're looking at Formula 3, which at the time was half a million quid a year, and then you're looking at Formula 3000, which was double that, and it just became a complete mess. Yeah. And I had a few wrong turns, bouncing between different categories. I moved to the States for five minutes and tried to make it out of there, out there. And yeah, that's probably a bit too much fun was had, if I'm honest. Living in Miami at the time, 20 years old, um, but. <laughs> That's a whole area we're that's not going to go into. That's, that's, yeah. that's probably for an yeah. after-hours podcast. Yeah. Um, but uh, eventually, in a, in a useful way, you know, multiple crunch points were reached where it's, the season was starting without me. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a seat in anything. I didn't know really what to do. It just sort of forces the issue. And one thing that I did do was pivot to sports car racing very early. And um, for what felt like pennies, you know, you could blag your way into a sports car seat at a very high level. And for me, in 2001, I was 21, I got a, a seat with Kramer Racing in what was then the equivalent to today's sort of LMP1 cars. Um, and I found myself paired up with XF1 drivers like Jean-Marc Gounon, you know, factory Mercedes driver, factory... How uh, did that feel? Did, they, did, did, you, did you feel under a lot of pressure? I mean, if, you've got, if you're pairing with a driver that's operated at that level, yeah. you must feel like you've really got to step up. Yeah, I, I had no idea what to expect. I literally, yeah. I, literally I, I couldn't conceive what the car was going to be like to drive. All I knew is that guys I'd raced against, like Alan Simonson and Formula Palmer Audi and um, various guys, they had done this move already the year or two before, and they had done very well. And I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that my buddy from the junior single-seater categories was in a 650 horsepower, Judd V10 screaming beautiful what was then SR1 prototype but I figured if they could do it then I might be able to and the useful thing about being paired with known quantities like Jean-Marc who was coming out of F1 or Ralph Kellners who was a factory Toyota GT1 driver just a year or two before um, is you had a direct benchmark you knew if you're any good or not and actually I was fine I paired up really well against those guys very quickly and definitely they had loads more experience and there were things that they were significantly better than me at but what an opportunity to learn yeah. I mean, what an extraordinary yeah. chance to sit in a debrief with an engineer and hear somebody of that level explain how they find the car to be behaving what they recommend doing um, it, was, it was quite something yeah amazing you'd sort of crossed a threshold where you had sort of left single seaters and the and the associated budgets and you you know you found your way into sports cars which is great and I that makes complete sense to me so what year was your first Le Mans 2002 maybe I can't remember 20 years it did, ago it didn't last 20 very long years ago. <laughs> yeah. uh, I know one or two people um, that have done Le Mans and they all have um, you know different stories different anecdotes and you know I think probably the experience is different for everyone and I think it's got an awful lot to do with the, you know the car you're in and the support you're getting and all the rest of it but I mean if you could best summarize 
the Le Mans experience, not necessarily the first year you did it, but yeah. but 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 if somebody sort of says to you, okay, Sam, like you know, in 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 a minute, tell me what Le Mans is like yeah. to do. How would you kind of summarise that? Well, I had two distinctly different types of experiences of racing at Le Mans seven times, eight times, can't remember now. Um, and the first half of those visits, I was having to scrabble together money to buy the seat. Now, it's not the kind of hundreds of thousands terrifying telephone numbers that it is today. In fact, one year we did a deal for, I think, about 12 grand or something to be in a, in a great car at Le Mans. But I had to wear my marketing hat rather than my crash helmet for at least six months before that, which meant that when I got to Le Mans, there was so much responsibility to anyone that had pitched in, if they were private people, friends, family, whatever, you didn't want to let them down. If they were commercial sponsors, they were often on site with VIP guests in some hospitality booth. I needed to make sure their stickers were in the right place. I needed to make sure that all my racewear was branded up properly. I needed to make sure that all the stupid email newsletters, everything was going well, the hospitality was good. If anyone had any preferences about food or drink, there was, you know, and I wasn't able to think about the car and the race. And so I found those years, don't get me wrong, I was thrilled to be there, but I distinctly remember Quite standing. Stressful. Yeah, st stressful. And I just standing in the garage with all these the, the thoughts of the, the commercial responsibilities going through my head rather than the bit about the car. And, and I, I hated that so much. And I really mm. envied other competitors that didn't have to think about that stuff. But it did turn out to be a really good way to learn about what it takes to turn into a pro driver and learn about marketing and learn about motorsport from a commercial perspective so I don't begrudge it and I needed to go through it but wow did things improve when I finally managed to tip the the balance of the seesaw in the opposite direction and be there as a paid professional suddenly the whole thing was just magical because you felt you felt justified you didn't feel like you were blagging it and that you were kind of you, you, you blagged your way into something that you maybe shouldn't be doing, even though I was always pretty good actually, you know, and, and my, my pace was fine. And I, I ended up feeling that I could pull the visor down and leave all of those sponsor related mm. concerns behind mm. me as soon as we mm. left the pit lane mm. and do mm. a, actually a pretty good job. But just to go back because the team really wants you to the point where they picked you and you you're not being paid a lot don't get me wrong but even if they're paying your expenses or something you just feel like fantastic i'm here i'm the nominated pro in the lineup i'm the lead driver i'm doing the setup i'm doing the qualifying attempt i'm starting the race and you would think that those responsibilities feel more pressurized but actually i found it the complete opposite it was just pure fantastic racing joy i loved it of the seven or eight times you've done Le Mans, what your best result has been? <laughs> They're all the same. DNF. DN all every I've day. never got to the sodding. I think checkered flag. Obviously, lack of mechanical sympathy, Michael. Probably. <laughs> no, it's brutal. I, I hate it so much. It's, uh, it's uh, it just kills me. It absolutely yeah. kills me. Um, the closest I got was 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 the year that was. Yeah, the most significant, and I, I sound like a washed up old racing driver with the same story on a repeat, like a broken record, but it, it was a special year. I was with Aston Martin when they had the beautiful golf liveried LMP1 coupes, and that was my first time with a big factory team, and um, yeah, it wasn't a high budget team. We were up against a brace of diesel Peugeots, a brace of diesel Audis. We were never gonna do anything better than the best case scenario would have been sixth, you know, first petrol power car home. This was in 2010. Um, but it was great because I had guys like Darren Turner as my teammate. So again, another benchmarking opportunity. And he's so easy and brilliant to work with. He's such a lovely laid back guy mm -hmm. that you're not navigating any weird intra-team politics or anything. But there's definitely an expectation to perform. And I hadn't experienced a team that was quite so brutally frank and serious. Um, nobody seemed to be there for fun. It was incredibly intense. 
And once I figured that out, I kind of loved it and just sort of joined in and I felt like I wanted to be a robot. Honestly, for, for the whole week, I trained like crazy in the months leading up to it. Um, obviously, we did a bunch of testing and and then during the Le Mans week, I just, you know, you still had some of those old sponsor-related responsibilities and of course, you've got family coming down and your phone's ringing with your mate wanting tickets and all of these things and, and it got to about halfway through the week, I think we've done one of the two qualifying days and I just thought, you know what, sod it phone went off and I didn't turn it back on for another three or four days until after the race and that was the best thing I could have done because I could just focus you know I, I did several track walks I made sure that I knew absolutely every single inch of what is a pretty large racetrack you know mm. I knew, it, it, if I went off in the rain in the middle of the night I'd know instinctively where to point the car to access an escape road um, I'd know which bits of the gravel were deep which bits were shallow you know, I'd know where there were drains and lumps and bumps and, and, and cambers in the road and crowns mm. in the road, mm. painted white lines to stay off off if it was wet and so on. And I would sit in the car till late at night with my eyes closed, just reaching out for the various switches, just to, you know, testing myself to, if I need to reach whatever it is. I don't know, change the engine map or something. Mm flat out in the middle of the night when you're maybe in a gaggle of other cars and you can't take your eyes off the road everything needs to be instinctive and um and i did and i i just got to the point i started the race i just i felt calmer than i had ever felt at any of the previous outings because of that level of preparation and and it paid off i i for my career it would have been better to probably go into it thinking I need to, you know, knock the socks off the lap times of my co-drivers. It's all about being the fastest driver on the squad over one lap. But anyone who knows Le Mans knows that that's a terrible idea. You're not a team player if you're doing that. You're not thinking mm. about the long game. You're not thinking about the fact that you've got 24 hours to nurse a car through to get to the flag. So I changed my philosophy and I just decided I was going to be the one that didn't make any mistakes. And I would hope that I could complete the race at a good enough pace, so not to be embarrassing. And I, and I, I, I didn't make any mistakes. My pace was pretty good, and I felt very comfortable in the car. And um, it got to the point where you know, Darren and I did a lot of the heavy lifting through the night. And in the last couple of hours, all of our rivals, the, the Peugeots mainly, I can't, actually, I can't remember if the Audis were there, they must have been there, but the Peugeots were the real competition. And one by one, they all failed. And so we went from running about fourth overall, sorry, from about sixth overall, and suddenly we're fifth, and then fourth. And then uh, I did my final, I think it was a, I think it was a triple stint was my last scheduled block of running to then hand over to Darren for the final stint, which was about 45 minutes, which felt great because he's a safe pair of hands. You've got that far. I was frankly just grateful not to have cocked it up. And um, so when you get the radio call saying, good job, Sam, you know, pit this lap, you think, phew, I've got half a lap to get through and I just hand it over and breathe a sigh of relief. Um, and on that in-lap, the engine let go. Oh. And, and suddenly, you know, I'm, I'm looking in the mirror, there's flames and smoke. And I got as far as rolling to Arnage and I finally had to pull over and park it and there was about 40 minutes to go. And what I didn't realize until later, uh, I was just, I, somebody told me, like, what a shame, you, you know, you'd have been on the podium. And I thought, no, it wasn't a podium. We were fourth, I think, when we were fifth even. And I think briefly we were in third. I don't actually know if that, if that was because of pit stops, but whatever. To finish anywhere in the top four, five, six at Le Mans, for a team like that, in a car like that, it was one of my favorite cars of all time, Great sound, great looks, great mm -hmm. livery. Mm. Uh, that would have been quite nice. That yeah. would have been amazing. Yeah, so I'm a little bit annoyed about that. Because <laughs> it would be, it would be, given this is the RM Sotheby's podcast, it would be remiss of us not to mention that we've got uh, an auction at Le Mans next year. Absolutely. These yeah. hundred, yeah, it's that. the hundredth yeah. running of the race next yeah. year, mm -hmm. 2023, and we've got a, we've got an auction and. What we're trying to do with that is, and we've already got two or three really great cars, but we, we're looking, we want 24 cars and we want 24 really 
historically significant Le Mans contenders. Not necessarily cars that have won, but cars that might have, you know, maybe a, had got pole or um, had had run well in the race or, you know, won their class or whatever yeah. um, from across the decades. Uh, and, it, and it is, you know, and when you look at the Le Mans, and all of that history. You need to look at the hundred years of Le Mans history and all of the incredible moments and the incredible cars that have taken place. I mean, there is nothing. There's nothing like it. Is there? uh, I think. I think it's so special. There, there's so much depth to endurance racing, but particularly the heritage behind Le Mans and the, the, the history of that one race. That when you get into it, you just kind of get enraptured by this whole thing. When I was a kid, I couldn't care less about Le Mans. I was only focused on Formula One. And even into my teens, when I started racing cars, I only cared about single seaters. And, and, and the idea that I might one day be a sports car driver was to say, oh, forget about it, no thanks. I'd rather go and do something else. I mean, mm. what a prat, you know, mm. what a complete prat. And I very quickly realized, you know, just how awesome actually it really was. And thank God I managed to kind of hustle my, my way in there because it gave me an entire career that's amazing no fantastic and and uh, you know you can look back on that with some you know at real pride and at what point uh well throughout that how much interest if any did you have in historic racing and old cars or uh, 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 or were you completely focused on new machinery how did you get involved in historic racing yeah. and at the point when you did was that by accident or had, is it, was it something that you kind of had wanted to do anyway? Um, so my link to historic racing was through my dad because as I said earlier he was doing a bit of club racing classic single-seater stuff but then he got more into the kind of Goodwoody kind of categories and through his buddy Neil Twyman I met our mutual buddy Joe Twyman and I would I would say that Joe and his dad and, and the family and, and certainly my dad were completely 100% instrumental and, and responsible for helping me get into historic racing. And that all started when, I think dad was racing a Lotus 11 car that you're very familiar with. Mm. Um, Good choice. And I had, a few, I had a few little goes in that. I remember coming from a, I think it was a Formula 3000 test at Snetterton and I bombed it down to Goodwood in time for qualifying in this little Lotus 11. And I, my right foot was so accustomed to the brake pressure that you need in the Formula 3000 car. When I got to the end of the straight on my first sort of push lap and I braked way too late and way too hard, I just spun this beautiful, perfect Lotus 11 that Neil Twyman and his guys had been fettling probably all year for that event. And I spun it through 360 degrees on the grass and thank God ended up pointing in the right direction and praying that nobody spotted it and learning my lesson very quickly about what a, a sort of a light touch you need to have with the controls of a historic race car. But I loved it. And very quickly after that, I was fortunate to be invited into other cars, the Bamford family, obviously huge collectors, huge entrants. Um, I was good friends with Joe Bamford and he was racing some of their cars. I went along with him to many of the races to co-drive with him, help a little bit on the coaching side. And they, um, actually one of, the, one of the most enjoyable historic race weekends ever was Goodwood, I think in 2003, I think, where I raced their yellow GT40. I don't know if you guys remember that, but I just hadn't been in a historic car with that kind of power um, and that kind of balance. And it just, it felt familiar or somewhat familiar to what I knew from Felt the more contemporary. Yeah, and so I could, mm. I could just lean on it. And it was a great car, very well prepared, and we got pole position, race win, and fastest lap of the whole meeting, actually. And, and from that moment, I thought, oh, OK, I, I could get into this. This is, that was really Well, and fun. of course, it's results like that that then get you noticed. And, and see, what's so annoying about you, Sam, is that you've done all of this incredible racing and you've not actually had to buy any of these cars, have you? <laughs> Don't you find that's quite annoying, isn't it? Yeah, but uh, uh, I'd love that. That has um, just changed last week, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, has it? Yeah, oh, that's yeah, another... Yeah, oh, OK, yeah. well, well, I'll ask you about that. Yeah. But Right, OK, so now here you are, you've, you've suddenly sort of found yourself in, in historic racing and, you, and, and you're doing really well. So, I mean, his, what, the amazing thing about historic racing is, is it's such a broad church, isn't it, in terms of, you know, you, you know, 
pre-war car. You know, you go and race an old pre-war car, and it's a, and that's sort of got a, a that's an experience all of its own. And then, you, as you say, you've got powerful stuff, you know, Can-Am cars, GT40s, and, you, and and everything in between. So, um, you know, reflecting now, I mean, you've been doing it a lot of years now. So, reflecting back on on all of the historics that you've raised, what is it? Those sort of big banger big capacity powerful is that what you love or 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 what um i to be honest i love the variety i don't really have a, a particular preference for one kind or another because what, what i love about historic racing in general and i've grown to learn about how important this facet is is they all have a very low level of of, of grip and bite so you're you're kind of managing some form of a slide or drift all the time and that's where the fun happens. So you mm. can be in a mini or, or something, you know, a, a Lotus 11 has got fantastic balance, tiny skinny yeah. tyres. Wheels like that, yeah, yeah tyres like that. Yeah. Not much power, but mm. it's so much fun to find mm. the limit mm. and keep it there and, 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 and be precise in a, in, a, in a nimble little sports car like that. Just as it's great fun to hustle a Cobra, you know, through the TT, which feels like a bucking Bronco by comparison. Um, yeah. I, love it. I love it all. And I've sort of been, not, not so much as a competitor, but really through my upbringing, your work as well, and, and Michael the same. Uh, I mean, I've sort of been around historic uh, racing and, and a, a lot as a spectator. Um, and it's changed a lot. And I, and I think events like Goodwood, I think very, Goodwood and Monaco perhaps, uh, they've changed the profile of historic racing in the sense that there are now so many more pros. Yeah. Uh, in it, uh, you know, you know, back in the day, if you'd gone to an historic race meet um, it, back in the 1980s, well, you know, with one or two exceptions like Willie Green and and and, but but basically it was a, just a bunch of rank amateurs <laughs> having a really really good time, and it has obviously changed now, and and I I personally don't do a lot of races where there's a high pro quota on the grid. I mean, I know, you, you know, Michael, you do the TT, don't you? And so you're, yeah. you're out there. There's a very broad range of talents yeah. um, out there. And uh, I mean, that presents some, ch I think it presents challenges on both sides. I think for, for, for the better drivers, you're trying to second guess what a less accomplished driver might be doing um, as you know, and, and, and that can create issues. I think also, it is, it, it's naturally very intimidating for the non-pros yeah. because they want to go out and enjoy their cars yeah. Uh, yeah. And, they, and they have every right to do that and, that I know, and, and maybe they, they have issues with the fact that they, they think, that, well I'm never going to do well in this yeah. race because I'm just surrounded by people that are getting paid to do it. I think, How, where do you sit in, I th in it with all I that? Think, I, think, I think we need to be careful with historic racing about that. I don't want to do myself out of a job and, 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 and there is a clear divide in my mind between the need for pros in terms of the, the job that I mainly do as a driver coach is I'm, I'm there to coach if it's an endurance race where two drivers are participating sharing the car I'm often one of the co-drivers and that's fantastic because it allows the coaching process to go on through a race weekend it's not confined only to test days and you change from coaching items relating to going faster to items relating to racecraft and safety on track how to conduct yourself among other people mm. and that's where i think that the arrival of a few more pros over the past decade or so operating as coaches in the historic racing world is a really good thing because there is and has been some appallingly crap driving over the years from amateurs who have the funding to buy their way into very quick cars, the combination of which has been, can be and often is very dangerous. And to have a, a pro in that circumstance as a coach who can discreetly dial down the danger level and yeah. dial up yeah. the competence level is better for everyone. I agree. Where I, agree. I think the line gets crossed and where I think we do need to be a little bit careful is where pros are hired as guns for hire and it's nothing to do with coaching um, it's nothing to do it's nothing to do with anything really than just just going out and, and, and trying to win yeah. I love that and I do think there's a place for it at some of the bigger events Goodwood perhaps some of the grids at, at Monaco and so on but I do strongly believe that historic racing needs to remain all about the owners 
who are largely amateur drivers. And remember, you know, many of them are fantastically fast. And I know that the 1980s that you just referred to had fewer pros on the grid, but I would suggest that the peak level of pace at the sharp end of those grids in the 80s was no faster or slower than it is today. It's just no. there's more people able to do those lap times yeah. and they all gather together yeah. at the big fancy events like Goodwood because it's the, the, the big deal. But I think all the dozens of other meetings in between those big blue ribbon events needs to remain absolutely about the amateurs. And so when an organisation like Masters slaps an elite driver penalty, which comes in the form of a depressingly extended long pit stop on a driver pairing that features a pro, I think that's absolutely right. That's exactly the, the way that that the, the organisers and the historic racing world in general needs to keep sending a message to owners, you know, we're here for you, we're not yeah. here for the yeah. pros. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think, I mean, where do you stand on that? Um, I think Sam's completely right. Like, it, it's, um, there used to be a well-known, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> used to be a well-known uh, sort of restorer dealer that, you know, it was always fielding cars with two pros in, in the car. And, you know, it did, it did ruin those series that, 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 car, that those cars ran in, you know, because it, it, it really meant that it was impossible for a guy who does a weekly job um, running a company or, you know, in the city or whatever, um, and then he's suddenly expected to be up against someone that's, that's had a stellar pro career. Um, and it, it actually just sort of it does take away from the enjoyment from that. Mm. And that you have yeah. to sort of you know, ultimately, if you're that, at that end of the grid, you will be a competitive person. It's as yeah. simple as that. No, no one finds themselves there just yeah. by accident. And um, you know, if you if you take away from that possibility of actually competing at that at that point, because it's just a sea of pro drivers, then you know the idea of sort of being a broad church just suddenly disappears. You're, you're then another motorsport formula. And, the and other that's thing is, what it shouldn't be, because it's historic racing. Absolutely. We, we need to be careful that we don't get carried away, because it's the historic racing version of the arms races mm. that you've seen over the years in modern categories that have ultimately led to their demise, whether it be the, the super touring days of the BTCC or DTM or you know, various iterations of, of, of GT racing over the years, where it's fantastic for a couple of years, but suddenly all the people that are the backbone of it disappear because you know, in historic racing that's the owners if, you, if ultimately too many owners decide not to enter an event because what's the point the best I can finish is eighth because it's full of pros at the front that series is not going to last very long and all of us who are you know gleefully thinking oh aren't we lucky you know earning our living racing these nice cars on behalf of our clients we're out of a job that's pro drivers, that's preparers, yeah. that's yeah. race organizers. Everyone's done. So well, we, we have to be careful. Absolutely. And, and, and I think, you know, we, we, we often say when we're talking about the market, uh, how important events are in underpinning the market for cars. Totally. And not mm. just racing, but, you know, there are lots of people that uh, will go out and buy a Mark II Jag because they want something to go and park in the old car car park at the Goodwood Revival. Yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of the reason why they're going out and buying that car. You know, the events are really important, but in, in historic racing, you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you know, these people that, um, you know, you go and spend a lot of money on a racing car because you want to have fun with it. And you, what you can't get around is that being competitive is part of a lot of it, it doesn't matter to everyone but at least feeling that you can be competitive is where a lot of the fun comes from yeah. if you can't be competitive then you're not having fun so what's the point point? and I it, yeah. It, yeah the uh, thing is there's actually when you think about it if you actually scan through a grid and I'm not talking about an event like Goodwood where they deliberately try to gather as many pros as possible as part of the show and that that's, that's a different concept and it makes total sense but if you scan the grids at the others there's actually not that many pros no. there's plenty though of people operating at a pro level and that's what I love about historic racing um, and and you know Michael I mean you're, you're a perfect example of someone you know your lap times in a Cobra in the TT are you know give or take plus or minus identical to mine you know 
depending it's on how much sleep I've had the night before. No, but, yeah. but you and I Faulty have had transponder, some, I would we've, say. we've had some great, <laughs> some great battles. You know, yeah, and, had, and, yeah. and for me, that's what historic racing is all about. It's, mm. you know, I'm not suggesting for a minute that the driving level at the sharp end of the grid should be anything other than exceptional. Bloody, bloody good. It should be really hard. And what I love about historic racing over here versus in the States is that's normal for us, particularly in the UK. I know that a lot of yeah. our European colleagues look at the way we race historic cars over here and they can't get their heads around it. But I love that. It should be flat out. We should be optimizing setups. I'm not suggesting that we start filling the cars with lots of sort of cheaty, fancy components, but no one ever said you can't change a spring here and there and dial, mm. the, dial the dams in or change ride height or mm. tire pressures mm. or actually pay attention to that stuff because yeah. you can be damn sure that Graham Hill did. Yeah. You know, so yeah. why shouldn't yeah. we? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think very often people moan about the rampant increase in development of these cars, the rampant reduction in lap times every year that we go back with an E-Type or a Cobra or whatever to Goodwood and suddenly we're a bit quicker than five years ago well, well yeah guess what you know we've, t we've done some testing mm, mm, what's wrong mm. with that it's well, part and of it's it. going back to this uh, 1980 period where I, I was really getting into it I mean you know Patrick Lindsay incredible driver full-time you know chairman of Christie's auction house <laughs> you know he very definitely had a day job Neil Corner very definitely had a day job that didn't involve racing cars yeah. and yet you know these guys were absolutely phenomenal drivers and and you're right I don't think you know if you know if Patrick was out racing Remus today he'd he'd be he'd be as quick as anybody yeah. um, on on that yeah. grid um, yeah. even allowing for you know a, a few pro drivers being there it may come as a surprise Michael to our listeners that there are some people uh, that buy and sell uh, old cars that are not RM Sullivan's <laughs> I know. It's a I shocker, mean, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I, I know, I know, I, and, and, and you... Not that anyone would contemplate not buying a car. It's extraordinary <laughs> that anyone would buy a car from yeah. anyone other than us. But, <laughs> yeah. but Sam, you, you know, as your sort of career has developed, you, you know, you race, you do driver coaching, and you also buy and sell cars. And, uh, and you know, I think it's natural for a man of your experience in, 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 that, that, that it's competition cars is really what you uh, specialise in. So um, let's just talk a little bit like, about that. And we're in an auction room. Actually, we've got some fabulous Group B cars behind us, and we've got a couple of Ferrari Challenge cars. How do you see the market, specifically in the world of historic racing cars? Is it, is it buoyant? Are you seeing certain areas of the market? growing and becoming you know a, a bigger part of of where people are wanting to spend their money certainly um so i've always thought that race cars are a bit more resilient to the ebb and flow that you see in the classic road car market and i'm sure it's because it's underpinned by utility these events yeah. this amazing yeah. calendar of events yeah. that we're all able to have access to every single year for such a wide variety of competition cars such a wide variety of of owners, whether they be super capable and competitive or, or just amateurs that want to trundle around gently on, in, on a regularity section of, of a tour or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And when you look at a calendar like that, it, the cars are the tantalizing ticket to those events, yeah. Yeah. which um, does seem to give the market for them some resilience. And that's definitely what I'm seeing. I mean, it, it, sometimes, you know, a, a typical day at the moment, you read the news one minute and it's terrifying in terms of you know the economy and global affairs and so on and then that same afternoon you sell a car or you source a car or you see a result or whatever it is and you think wow that just doesn't compute um and thank god for it you yeah know. well yeah um, but, but but i do i do think there's some logic there i i would have thought six months ago that we should have all started to get a little bit worried. In, I'm talking about the, the race car market, but actually I've seen the opposite. I've seen um, record prices, particularly for some categories. The GT1 category is going absolutely bananas. And for me, all the writing is on the wall that that is being considered the modern day version of the great 60s grand touring cars mm -hmm. that make up the TT grid Goodwood every year and have become yeah worth many millions of dollars depending on which one you're talking about and we're seeing 
the great cars from the late 90s and, and you know sort of GT1 era obviously having been led by the McLaren F1 into the stratosphere on values already for so many years but everything else has sort of lagged behind and I think people have woken up to the fact that GT1 was an extraordinary category of cars championed by some of the greatest marks in the industry producing beautiful shapes that are familiar enough to most onlookers to think oh, that's a Mercedes, yet yeah, that's a Porsche, recognize those headlights. And you kind of got two tiers. You've got the top tier of the homologation specials, super limited production runs in the tens, not, not the sort of hundreds in terms of the quantities of chassis built. Um, so, you know, we're seeing $10 million Porsche GT1 cars now becoming a normal thing. We're seeing, you know, similar numbers for Mercedes-Benz CLK GTRs. Um, yeah, which kind of nothing when you think of McLaren F1 actually, but 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 they're all they're all moving in that direction very quickly. Um, you know, five million euros for a Maserati MC12, um, seemingly overnight. Ferrari 550 Maranellos, which obviously not so much of a homologation special. Ferrari made plenty of 550 road cars, but they were only a small handful. Yeah, that the were, Pro Drive that cars were the, or, produced yeah, by yep. Pro Drive and yeah. went onto the world stage and just dominated everything um, and it's a beautiful car it sounds amazing and you know a, a 550 Maranello you know, pro drive car is now sort of a five million quid car you know history give or take DBR9 Astons were the follow-on project for pro drive immediately after the 550 program ended so all of that knowledge all of that experience was poured into Aston's DBR9 program just happened to be one of the most beautiful looking GT cars of all time also sounds amazing does a very similar job to the Ferrari but because it's not a Ferrari but it still is an Aston the values of those were just a little bit delayed and DBR9 values are now rampantly catching up with the Ferraris because I sort of think people that look at the two and go well hang on the Aston's not half a 550 it dominated yeah. Le Mans yeah. Sebring yeah. won everything at the yeah. same time and it's just as beautiful yes okay we'll give the Ferrari badge a little bit of a bump a bit of a premium but it's not double so you know what was a one and a half million quid DBR9 is now two or three or four depending on which car it is um, and it just seems to be a rising tide and the nice thing about it is that while it's not alone as being a, a subsection of the race car market that seems to be having its moment in the sun there are others 1990s formula one cars are having a, a very nice time at the moment again because people out there have got themselves together organized a calendar of events well, where that, you, can, yeah, you can't absolutely. race them yet yeah. but we all grew up loving 1990s F1 naturally aspirated three and three and a half litre engines wide tyres wide track cars clean body work iconic liveries all the drivers that are heroes and no one more than me wants to see a race series created in the near future for those but unfortunately two things hold the values back of those kind of cars compared to things like the GT1s we were talking about and that is the physical size of the cockpits Mm. tiny and it eliminates a vast proportion of the potential I'm audience. All right. I'm alright, yeah, you I know. too, forget I'm, about it. Yeah, I'm you very jealous, one of my yeah, shoes. You'd, you'd be yeah. fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't have the money, but I'll fit. Michael and I would be like giraffes, yeah. like, a, like, a, like a periscope. Right in front of um, the airbox. Yeah. And the other thing is F1 is intimidating. For mm. an amateur audience, mm. which it largely is, a Formula One car is a scary thing. And even if they're not that scared of it, and even if they do fit, when you actually drive them, if you go and speak to some of the current owners who are amateurs that did get on the train early and have enjoyed some outings in their very special Williams or McLarens or Ferraris or whatever, you know, three to six laps, they are knackered and they're nowhere near achieving or exploiting the full performance potential of those cars. So yes, it's an amazing bucket list item and, and box to have ticked but in terms of a, a wider audience looking to cars that excite them that they're not intimidated by that they can fit physically and comfortably into and that are gentle enough to accommodate 
the lesser experience of an amateur driver, but capable enough to accommodate somebody that's become really quick and does have a lot of experience. GT1 just seems to hit the sweet spot, so that's flying at the moment. Um, and because it's part of the same grid, the LMP categories from you know, the late 90s through to sort of yeah, as recently as 2016 even, uh, are all enjoying a lift as well. And again, it's just because you know, Peter Auto, with Jared Venables' help, Venables's help, have created a fantastic series, the Endurance Legends grid mm. for mm. these prototypes and the GT cars. And then Ron Maiden with Masters, Endurance Legends, doing something very similar, but accommodating younger cars in that as well. And so do, do you think that the rise in the appeal uh, of uh, some of these sort of what let's call the modern era race cars I know that's a pretty broad term in its own right but do you think that that may be having any kind of a negative impact on cars from other eras so I don't know I'm just going to spout a little bit that somebody that had a sum of money that perhaps 10 years ago uh, would have bought them a D-type Jag yeah. let's just say as a great historic sports sports racing car do you think that that money is potentially now going into other things at the expense potentially of say 1950s sports racing cars uh, or, or is it or you know I feel like 90s stuff has taken some sort of what would have been incoming money away from stuff like group C um, right you know, and it's and yeah. but that's not at the top level of group C yeah. so Great 956s, Sauber C9s, C11s, you know, stuff like that. Um, you know, they, they're not really affected by that because they're not cars that people are going to particularly buy to, to go and compete in. At the but same a, time, a, a Rondo or something. A, yeah, yeah, a, yeah. a, a you know, a Neil Thompson, yeah, sorry, a Thompson Tug 962 or, you know, Richard Lloyd Racing 962, something I love because of the history of Richard Lloyd, stuff like that. But actually, that's a race car. And 90s stuff is on, on, in some ways cheaper to run. It is more user-friendly for an amateur driver because it was more designed for that. Yeah. You know, so it's, it, it has channeled that sort of interest slightly further towards the I 90s, 2000s grid. For, for drivers interested in fast cars yeah. that maybe did previously do Group C, and prior to that, maybe did the, the, the Can-Am maybe Can-Am stuff or the mm. C, you know, Matra, for example, you know, from CER, uh, classic endurance racing with Peter Auto. You know, maybe some of that audience has been distracted into the yeah. younger stuff. But I think as long as Goodwood exists, there mm. will always be a market for the D-types of this world. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. What we try to do sometimes on these podcasts, Sam, um, is just fire some... So I'm just going to fire some questions at you and don't overthink the answer just <laughs> what comes into your head do I have final editing rights over there so I have no idea yeah you know <laughs> we're not going out live so um, uh, best car you've ever driven road car or race car either uh, race car Ferrari 333 SP road car probably a Ferrari F40 in terms of pure driving pleasure not ultimate lap time performance well, okay yeah. worst worst race car worst race car worst race car I mean it could be worse because I can't think it's bad not very good or maybe because it was just a really hard car to master you were supposed to drive I, the AMR1 weren't you but that was never delivered. I, d I never, I never drove. So maybe that's the. <laughs> I was involved in sort of the, the wooden buck design and the yeah. cockpit layout and stuff. No, I would love to have driven it, but yeah. I, I think that's actually a good car. It just didn't mm, have the horsepower. Didn't have the yeah. yeah. Um, worst race car. I, I drove. I drove an Allard. I think it was a J2X once at Le Mans Classic that oh, yeah. had literally been wheeled out of a museum basically the day before, and put onto the grid, and it looked like the wheels were falling off it as it just sat there still and it felt very much like the wheels were falling off so yeah that was pretty horrendous yeah fair enough even fair though enough. they're otherwise good cars when they're well yeah, prepared they're very, can be very competitive yeah. at j2x yeah sure um you're going to buy one car you're not going to buy this for investment it's just because you love it and it's going to stay in your garage forever what are you going to buy road or race car race car race car 
it would probably be a sort of Xena McLaren MP44 or something. Would it now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, you've got quite. A, you, you've got. You've got a bigger Champ budget. Than I thought. Taste of lemonade pockets. <laughs> Yeah. One race car's having a garage forever. What are you buying? Oh my god. Uh, I have my dad's Cobra. Job done! <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, fine. In, 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 in my purchase, I need a sort of bit of magic fairy dust to make me just shrink to be half the size so I can at least drive this thing. Will you? Otherwise, I'm just mm. going to have to look at it or call you. You could be yeah. my pro. Hey. Just buy the stuff. Can I'm I a, afford I'm, you? I'm a phone call away. Oh yeah, okay, you can afford. You can 100. You can. Yeah. Um, brilliant. Thank you, Sam. Not at all. Thank, Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Really informative. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. And um, I think we'll wrap that up there. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on the RM Sotheby's Car Show here in London. If you want to listen to the full extended episode of our interview with Sam. Please do that by downloading the podcast. If you're watching this on YouTube now, it exists as a podcast. Go to all of the usual places where you download podcasts and you will find it there. And there's a whole load more content there. Thank you very much. <laughs>